I hate to break it to you, but Warren Buffett never put his name on four big investments that had performance like this. And very few people have. It's actually tough, Dougals, to buy a stock that goes down 90%. Well, I mean, I've done it. So it's. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. We're going to start this off with a translation exercise. You ready? Can't wait. Yeah, let's go. Translate it. Are you... (laughs) No, translate it. You can't. I feel like that's because you've changed your your mentals such that when someone says "chamath," just in like a normal tone, you can't even understand. You refuse to comprehend. I mean, <laughs> can you give can you give a introduction of what happened this week to like our audiences if they were an eight year old? I can't even. It, we're so deep in the the chamath weeds here. I can't even explain it to a layman. I think you can go for it, man. You got you got to do this. This is your beef to cook. Actually, like episode five, what is me yelling at Chamath? <laughs> and now yeah. the whole world is yelling at Chamath right now. So I'll try, Diggles. There's this podcast called All In. I want your help with All In because All In is some buddies from Silicon Valley who all have pretty impressive track records who started a podcast as besties, which they joke about being good friends, right? And the early episodes of All In, I thought were pretty interesting and intriguing. And you were getting insights from behind the scenes of some of their investments and other things. And I haven't listened as much recently, but I feel like that group of friends has gone through a, a rough time. They've almost all, it's a, except David Freeberg, I think, <laughs> had some really rough times in the last couple of months that is that is kind of what you're saying i think is is spot on and it's hard to say something like this universally but to what you said i mean if you look at each one of them they're the way that they came into both their money and their careers is very impressive like yeah. super impressive and then once they got to that point it's like embarrassing's too strong of a word but sometimes it is, but I like, I don't mean to say they are embarrassments as human beings. That's not what I mean. It's just kind of like a, I think it's, and it's, if you separate it from them, it can be hard to figure out what to do when you're like at the top of your, like when there, when yeah, there yeah. isn't that hunger, right? Cause I, I think they all came from places of hunger to a certain extent and now they're well-fed and that can just be more difficult. So to that point, yeah. And Chamath, what you said and whatever that was, that early episode, you said episode five, I don't know what episode it was, but he was, mm-hmm. he was saying you can't value stocks because you can't value your children. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so then uh, we're not here to talk trash about anyone. And I'm sure they're smart people with good intentions. And, and sometimes the podcast is entertaining, but, but what has happened in the past, say 24, 36 months with Chamath who rose from fame being an early employee at Facebook. And again, I'm sure he's a smart individual, but I think I think my left pinky could have been an employee at Facebook and made hundreds of millions of dollars if you got equity that early. Like he was also in the right place at the right time. So during the the SPAC 
craze of are we calling this the spec craze of 2021 is that fair to say uh, yeah i think 2021 um, yeah when the world went crazy this is from memory i believe he released four or five spacs something like that um and as a refresher even though we've covered this on previous shows what that means is the principal organizing party that raises the funds for the spec is often guaranteed $200 million plus, regardless of the performance of that SPAC. And then the retail investor, I'll call it, that actually puts their money up is along for the ride. Historically, SPACs have performed incredibly poorly. And Chamath has done an incredible job of proving that hypothesis because three or four of his five SPACs are down 90-ish percent. So literally just burned money in the air and probably cashed several hundred million dollars worth of checks, if not a billion dollars. It's a lot of money. He made news this week because someone who had lost money investing in his ideas questioned him about it on Twitter. And dude goes, are you pulling it up? Are you, are you pulling am. up the exact quote from him? I am. Or do you, do you want to walk us through that exchange? Yeah, I'll walk through the whole exchange. And this is, there are three people total in this exchange. So you're going to hear from three different people. I'll say when it's Jamath. So it starts with Shamal saying, why did you not sell when I sold? What was your underwriting at that time? Other person comes back. How do you live with yourself given the massive losses you inflicted on SPAC holders? Shamath, I didn't inflict any losses. Stop being a victim. The world will pass you by. Other guy comes back. You are a pump and dumper. Nothing more. Shamath, I'm in the arena trying stuff. Some will work, some won't, but always learning. You're anonymous and afraid of your own shadow. Enjoy the sidelines. Then the third person comes in and says, which ones have worked, dude? Open is down 90%. CICV or CLOV is down 90%. Space is down 75%. SoFi down 22%. You've blamed the Fed, you've blamed investors, but you've never blamed yourself for structuring beep deals. <laughs> well, not beep deals for yourself, of course. So the summary is, Shamath is like, if you did the right thing, you, you wouldn't have lost. Don't be a victim, man. Get out there and do that thing. And people, and, and people are like, do what thing? Your things didn't work. The track record here, I'm glad we actually had those stats because I was wrong. There's only four SPACs instead of five and two are down 90%. There's like a backstory here where four years ago, he's, consult, he's comparing himself to Buffett, you know, like. And, and yeah. building this story through a blog and a company and a podcast about being such a visionary. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Warren Buffett never put his name on four big investments that had performance like this. And very few people have. It's tough. It's actually tough, Dougals, to buy a stock that goes down 90%. Well, I mean, I've done it. So it's, <laughs> but I agree. No, it's very, very rare. It's very, very I mean, hard. for. For three-fourths of your holdings to go down more than 75% is tough. It, unless you're Kathy Wood or yeah. the Goldman Sachs non-profitable index. I mean, this is tough to pull off. I think this is... I mean, I don't know. I don't really care. I don't expect him to say I'm sorry. I don't know if he said he was sorry, if that makes anyone's life better. But it's just a, a interesting exchange. Like, it's why it's i mean i think it's just his personality uh, that that's i think that's all it's why 
And it was probably wrong of me before when I used the word embarrassing. I don't mean, I mean, they, the All In podcast is incredibly popular. They're still doing well there. So yeah. it's not about commercial success. It's just the the public persona has shifted in a way that uh, people a few years ago would not have talked about Chim- or talked to or about Chamath like this. And I think that's that's the shift that I was mostly talking about. And Buffett, I mean, Buffett, if Buffett didn't have to file a 13F, he like wouldn't be advertising his ish he doesn't call himself buffett and he is buffett you know like it's a, that's he's he's just a dude that shows up and makes good choices some bad you know like that's that's all he is that's where there's this uh there's this larger analysis that i think needs to be done and why i think the the calling him a pumper pump and dumper maybe got under his skin so much because yeah. that podcast and those individuals have become such public yeah 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 investing i don't know what to call it but they they've used their platform to funnel money off into their investments i i mean they they sold solana the crypto which they had huge investments in they they've done a lot of this where they talk up their investments and i'm sure they've seen the benefit of that with money flowing to those things and then they have the ability to get out um almost with insider information and a lot of that stuff so it's a slippery slope man to have that mm-hmm. public of a persona it's it's almost like if jim kramer had and maybe he does but i'm not aware of this like more private investments behind the scenes that he could tell his viewers to go fund and then pull out whenever it's convenient for him it does seem like there's a conflict of interest there yeah Speaking of Jim Cramer, as an aside, yeah. did you see that the the pro Jim Cramer fund shut down? I did. <laughs> so are are you shocked? Tuttle Tuttle Capital started an anti Jim Cramer fund that bet against things that Jim Cramer was was going for, and they started a pro Jim Cramer fund that invested in the things that Jim Cramer was going for, or or not going for that Jim Cramer was touting positively uh, or rating highly, yeah. whatever. Yep. Uh, the short one, the one betting against, is still going, but they couldn't get enough interest in the, in the one that was pro Jim Cramer. Poor guy. Poor guy. All right. Can I shift us? Please do. I want to talk about KPI, key performance indicator, psychosis. This is the second week in a row I think the word psychosis has come up on this podcast as well. Let's not make it a third. Okay. Let, let's, just, let's just go ahead and say we can skip at least one week of psychosis. There is this post called how to avoid KPI psychosis in your organization. You know, what? sorry, as an aside, I just realized that the title of this post has a question mark in it, but while it starts with the word, how it's not a question, (laughs) the the title is actually a statement, how to avoid KPI psychosis in your organization. Anyway, it's written by Agaston Tarok. I'm probably getting that pronunciation wrong. And uh, psychosis is defined in here and it's when you're, reality is separated from the data just kind of put it that way like facts are separated from reality as the definition of psychosis is using and kpi psychosis is defined as something where you you take kpis and you follow them to such a an extent that what the kpis are showing are disconnected from the reality of the world that is what he's defining as kpi psychosis definition work yes cool i found this to be pretty cool mental model here few things that are brought up. One, humans are biased. 
we talk about all kinds of biases on here before. There's proximity bias, there's confirmation bias, there's anchoring bias. We talk about a lot of biases. Humans are biased. We use numbers to get rid of biases. And then he's saying, and those numbers are biased. <laughs> that is, that's like the, the frame of this whole thing. Humans are biased. We rely on numbers to get rid of biases. We create the systems in which those numbers operate. And therefore, in some cases, those numbers can also be biased. That's the frame. I love this quote that he brings up from Einstein. Did Einstein say this? I don't know. Because Einstein and Mark Twain and Warren Buffett are supposed to have said every quote that anyone has ever said. And so I don't know if this is Einstein. But the quote is, everything that can be counted does not necessarily count. Everything that counts cannot necessarily be counted. He brings this up, this quote, because what he says, this goes back to the numbers are biased point. What he says is that there are many circumstances in which in that reliance upon numbers that I mentioned, people are counting what's available, right? So availability bias. They're counting what's available, and that can disconnect them from the context of what they're really trying to solve. And I like the analogy that he uses to go into this. And interrupt me at any time if you got a mm -hmm. comment here. The analogy is one that those that work in the, in the tech world will, will be able to relate to. There's this KPI he mentions that's time to last bite. So think about this. If you go to a website, you load the website, you're like, oh, I'm trying to get to my PerezHilton.com. You go to your website, you type in PerezHilton.com, and what comes to your, your browser are all the bytes, right? The data that's coming to you. And so this time to last byte is saying, when does that last piece of data hit your ear sockets? And by ear sockets, I mean eye sockets. <laughs> when does the last piece of, of data? And so that's the last byte. So how long does that page take to load? And what he's saying is if, if you just take this in... In the abstract, like someone's like, okay, we want to minimize that time to last byte. And so you just, you might say, let's analyze our servers and make sure our servers is as fast as possible. But what you miss is the fact that the reason you want to optimize that is for user experience. It's not actually about the KPI. It's about the user experience. And so you could go and you could like look at other data and say, oh, the reason that time to last byte for this particular set of users is because they have slow internet connections. And so it's not about our servers. It's about us putting, it's not about fixing our servers. It might be about putting servers closer to them so that it can load faster because they have slow internet connections. It might be about partnering with Comcast to make sure they have faster internet connections, whatever it might be. But if you just rely upon the KPI, you focus on it relentlessly and you might be focusing on the wrong thing. All right, there I'm going to pause. I like it. It's a really good thought exercise. This happens in every company I've ever been a part of. And there's this pendulum that swings between, well, we don't have data, so we're flying blind. So we have to get the data. And then when in, the, in an effort to get that data, you realize you can't get all of the data. You go back to the Einstein quote that you actually need. So you try yep. and get data that approximates the data you can't get. And the pendulum swings to a severe point where another thing people often forget with KPIs is the lost... Uh, capacity to do other work in mm -hmm. creating these reports right so i think it's astute it's a good sanity check i'm going to pull it into investing for a moment because this this talks about it from the the product and organization standpoint but to bring it into investing it'd be similar if if someone says i want to make sure that i'm finding stocks that are not overvalued and price to earnings is what i'm going to look at so every stock i analyze 
I'm just going to look at their price to earnings ratio. And that's it. So you look at price to earnings. Price to earnings is a good valuation tool, just in the abstract, good valuation tool. Every company does not, should not have a similar price to earnings ratio necessarily. There are lots of other factors and lots of other contexts that go into it. I'm using price to earnings as a, yeah. as one of several you can use. And I think that that's important to say, what are you, if what you were trying to solve is I want to find an organization that is priced fairly or has a margin of safety, so well below what I believe is fair valuation, just looking at one data point is not going to give you the context for a full organization. I think it's it's similar to that. And that's where in the investing world, I think that there's a, a key tie-in. He says, I'll, I'll drop another thing. He says, when you're looking at what you should be measuring in order to make these decisions, think about it from both a validity, which he says is it measures like the actual thing that you're trying to measure. And from the reliability perspective, which is that when it changes, whatever you're measuring changes, that the good or bad thing also occurs, point of view. And I think that that's, that might be a little abstract, but I think it's important. I'll go over those again. One is validity, that the metric that you're looking at ties to whatever you're trying to solve. The reliability means you can test that validity by saying, if you change that metric, then whatever you're trying to solve also changes, right? That's the way to, to look at it. I think it's like a pretty cool point. I hadn't thought about it broken down that way before and really like that, that framing. If we go back to investing, the way I think about this is you have some valuation measure. You are using price to earnings, so I'll stay there. And you say, typically, I want to buy stocks that are at a price to earnings of less than 10. But if you get hung up on that, you're going to buy some garbage. The, the flip side in the investing world is kind of like Disney right now. And I haven't done a deep dive on Disney, but Disney's trading at 2014 prices, I think, and yep. seems to be continuing to trend down. So at some point, when Disney trades trades at 2002 prices, I'll pull the thing up, not because I know anything about price to earnings, just because I go, this seems odd. You know, like it, if my f uh, fundamental investing philosophy is something like I want to buy quality companies at discount prices when something hasn't done anything for 20 years and it's a well-known company that has historically made great money, something like Disney. That's probably worth a look. And then I can figure out if that hypothesis is true or not. But I'm not rigidly sticking to my KPI of saying X metric says this. I'm taking in this other information and using a more thoughtful approach, hopefully. Exactly. And that is related to the point, one point that he makes in here that you should use KPIs in combination with human intuition for decision making. Intuition might be a little too loose given what you were just saying, but let's just call it other analyses or other judgment based on other data. Right. In this case, that, that's exactly right. So if you use a, a KPI as a guide, as like an initial screen, that's fine. Just not as the ultimate like decision tool. Agreed. You know what would take this article to the next level? I think it's really solid. You know what would take this to like Hall of Fame level article? I don't even want to guess. Man, if you just said go for a hike in the middle of it. <laughs> I had a very similar situation this week where I could not solve something. Mm. And I... I went and climbed a little mountain and like, I got it. I came back, built this sweet spreadsheet, ultimate compensation tool. It's going to knock, I mean, knocks my socks off. Oh my so, goodness. Well, you had to take your socks off because of all the sweat buildup from the hike. Yeah. I always switch my socks after, after the hike. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so was it the spreadsheet? Was it the hike? I don't know, <laughs> but the, man, the man's socks are off. 
Nobody knows. All right, can we talk minimum wage? Ooh, yes, yes, yes. I kind of love this article, but this is a contentious topic, so I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth, Diggles. So there's a, a article in the New York Times titled, In a Hot Job Market, the Minimum Wage Has Become an Afterthought. I can argue both sides of the minimum wage debate, but my favorite side, which which certainly has holes, my favorite side is let the market decide. and Which is kind of where we are right now. Where we are right now in a place like New Hampshire, which is where this article starts, New Hampshire ice cream shop, the, the, the state minimum wage is $7.25. And the going wage to get anyone to show up to apply is 14 bucks an hour. I mean, yes. completely disconnected. And so they go through, they, they give lots of examples of this, but in state legislatures throughout uh, the country, basically these bills aren't even being debated by either side anymore because it's not really relevant. No one is saying, well, listen, someone's at risk of making six bucks an hour. That's not where we are. And with inflation the way it is, that's probably not where we're going to be anytime soon. The market is determining a much higher rate than the actual minimum wage. And there's something as I, as I was reading this, and I was saying, this is the point in time where the minimum wage could potentially serve what I would view as its true purpose. I'm setting a true purpose for something I did not come up with that was come up with, you know, 100 years ago or so. So when I say true purpose, I'm just saying in my mind. Okay. Where, because the, the place where I believe you would argue against, right, from the market perspective, is when the minimum wage sets the market price which is effectively what it did to a certain extent historically. This article shows if you go back about 15 years, you had about 2 million people in the US that were making the minimum wage. And today that's more like 68,000 people, right? So definitively, as we said today, it is not setting the market price. It was more so setting the market price about 15 years ago. But the true purpose I'm talking about is if you say, if we say as a country, we believe that there's some minimum that the wage should not go below that minimum probably isn't 725 anymore i don't know what it is yeah but even if we said yeah really it should be like 13 the market price would still be above what the minimum wage would be but it could still reflect things like inflation like if we just say as a country i'm making all this up but if we said as a country philosophically we think that we should say what is the federal average for what someone would need in order to survive, right? Basic yep. needs. And then say, and as a government, we provide things like welfare and child tax credits. And so you take that basic need and you say, uh, it's 15% less. I'm, I'm making all this up. I'm just making up numbers. It's 15% less because of government benefits. So if that number is 14, you take out government, government benefits. Now we're at 1250. Or whatever and like so that's our minimum wage i could see like the government setting something like that which is not the market wage it's just it's the, what the government is saying a minimum wage maybe that's maybe too complicated what do you say no, no let me just i mean i don't want to dive too far into the minimum wage debate but the what you're saying is logical but there's so it's just so complex we we, we come up with a minimum wage but we don't come up with like a minimum hours worked per week so the minimum wage is yeah. typically based yeah, on some true. math around, well, if this person worked 40 hours a week, but 
if anyone's ever worked at a grocery store or other big corporations, in some cases like a Walmart, they actively work to give people 31 hours a week so they don't have to pay them benefits, which completely changes the equation of how they can afford yeah. the, your standard cost. Of, it's just like... Very true. Very true. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You could do something more like anyone that is employed supposedly full-time has to get X dollars per week in order to meet their basic needs. But it, yeah. even that is really tricky. That's right. So anyway, from my perspective, in the simplest sense, I love when the market uh, drives it because I, that feels more efficient to me. That doesn't mean it's efficient and that doesn't mean there's not issues with it. Yeah, that's very true. Let me say this. I used to work in a grocery store. Yeah. I did not work 40 hours per week and that company was better for it. Like the le the less hours I worked at that grocery store, the better that grocery store operated. I can say that definitively. I was not good at that job. What I found to be most interesting about this article, uh, there was a, a chart that they had in there and it, it showed state by state mm -hmm. the difference between the minimum wage in that state and what they're calling the 10th percentile wage, which is the wage where 90% of workers make more than that. The comparison between states was fascinating. And within each state, the difference between their minimum wage and where the 90, 90th percentile plus of wage workers was absolutely fascinating. At the bottom of this was Mississippi. And at the top is Washington, where when it comes to what the, the 10th percentile uh, wage is. And the 10th percentile wage in Mississippi is close to 10 bucks. And in Washington, it's over 16, a 60% difference in 90 percentile or the 10 percentile wage is super fascinating. I think we'll, we'll put this out on the sub stack so y'all can, uh, can read it through. It is really interesting. This is another thing. Like my, my friends in Europe sometimes have a hard time comprehending how different America can be state to state. And mm -hmm. Mississippi is almost always the example on the low end. What, what's also fascinating here is some of the states that have not moved off the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, yep. like a New Hampshire, where the going 10th percentile wage is almost 15 bucks an hour. Like yeah. th they're stubbornly yeah. saying, no, we're not moving this. But that gap is just massive. Um, and then there's the more progressive states that have moved uh, the minimum wage up a place like California, where the minimum wage is 14 bucks an hour. But their 10th percentile wage is still greater than that because of market forces. Look at Connecticut. Connecticut, it's the same. Like they are still, the government of Connecticut is setting the market price. Still at same this point. With, or, uh, or following the market price. I don't know. I'm not sure what the order of operations was here for Connecticut, but. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. All right. You're not going to like this. But I tend to like what you don't like. Yep. Is it correlation causation? Oh, no. But I tend to like the things that you don't like. This relates a little bit back to the KPI psychosis, but a, di a different view of it. There is a post called, should we expect valuations to mean revert over time? For the record, I'm going to go back to my boy, Augustone, that wrote the KPI psychosis article. This is a proper question. This is how you write a proper question. Okay. Title of the post, should we expect valuations to mean revert over time? This Answer is by the post, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Burn Hobart at the diff.co wrote this, not Skippy. And so the entire content of this post is not yes, period. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Do you want to start with just your reaction to No, uh, no, I want you to dive in. The there's so many blessings that come from this podcast. But one is and I get to go to a friend who I trust and we can consume the exact same material and we can have different interpretations for that. So I love I mean, I read this. I think it largely agrees with my point of view. I'm not sure that you agree with that, but let's let's debate. Let's have some fun with it. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So my read of this is that well, one. Let me actually back up. So what it does is it walks through, at least at a high level, some of the uh, what valuation metrics look like over time. And so if you look at PE is is what this sticks on. If you look at that and say and look over decades. Stocks traded at high single digits in the 40s and 50s, high teens in the 60s, early 70s, back to single digits in the early 80s, then went cray cray, right? During that long bull run that went through the 90s. So we're talking 40 plus. And then you have a question now of will multiples ever get back to where they were? Like if you look at like the 50s, 60s, 70s, like along those lines. What I my what I took away from this is mean reversion is real. What that mean will be and when it will revert is the question mark. And that raises a huge to, to me, maybe not huge, let me back up. That raises a, a material and discussion worthy cloud over what mean reversion is. Discussion worthy cloud? There's yes. there's no cloud. Things mean revert, Douglas. What? <clears throat> no. So here's how I would say the exact same thing. Mean reversion is real. It happens. It's happened 100 percent of the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me finish. But you don't know when it's going to happen. You have these extended periods of high valuations or low valuations. Let's not let's not pretend that it never hangs out on the low side and you're waiting for the thing to bounce. So. For some investors, I mean, this is why if you invest with one factor, and what I mean there, if, if you don't know, is like there's a whole field of study called factor investing where you pick something like momentum or value or a thousand other things and say, this is how I'm going to invest. Any one of those one factors has a, a huge problem that's you don't know when it's going to return to historical norm. So you can look at all these back tests and you can say, I know the strategy will work, but you never know when that strategy is going to work. The thing is that you, the point that you left out though, because you just said the when, you didn't say what the mean is. Like, what is the mean right now? Are you saying the three year, the five year, the 10 year, the 15 year, the 30 year? Like, what's the mean? What is it reverting yeah. to? If you have two variables, when and what then what is mean reversion <laughs> um <laughs> i, I don't there. really think that's the gotcha that you think it is dude <laughs> i don't i don't really care give me the 20 30 year or 100 year and i'm good i mean i'm not it's not going to be the one year for me <laughs> well that's yeah that's it's hard to get a mean out of one data point i'm not it's not a gotcha because i'm not saying mean reversion is not real i'm just saying that it's a question mark as to what it is like it's hard to say i would state Mean reversion is real. What's hard to say is what is the mean, and when is it going to happen? If if you take the to the, go to the extreme, which you would never do, if you do take the mean of the last three months, you go okay, we're going to mean revert 
the last three months, which is what folks do when they're looking at technical analysis and they look at like 200 day moving averages, right? Or something like that. That's what, like seven months. So you pull something that recent and say, that's that's the mean I'm looking at. Okay, so is mean reversion real there? Or if you look at like a 15 year, like it's, it's, it's not, it's not straightforward, I think is the point, which is the takeaway I had from here, which I thought was valuable in my mentals. Follow, I guess I knew it wasn't straightforward. And I also know that this can't be applied aimlessly. It, it almost goes back to the KPI articles. When we talk about mean reversion, it has to be a normalized value. Like if anyone thinks that you just take the mean reversion of the total price of a stock. That's not how this works because companies, growth companies should grow. They should make more money over time. That's the whole goal of the company. So you have to find a normalized metric, something like a price to earnings ratio, something like a price to book ratio, a Schiller Cape ratio, which is a cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, a 10 year period. I have, so when you go back to what is the mean, Dougal's like, Start with CAPE. It's a pretty solid metric. You're getting 10 years worth of data. It's based on a normalized value of PE. Run with it. And I have no heartache about it. Yeah. I know that there's but a then, time uncertainty. Th then you're looking at what the mean is between 2013 and 2023, mm -hmm. which is a different period of time than you might have in the prior 10 years. So which one are we trying to revert to? And, and that, that's like... the, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to take your answer. I'm going to keep talking. The, one of the, the two are, it's, it, there are two arguments against mean reversion that were listed in here. I don't think that the author was actually arguing against mean reversion. They were just bringing up these arguments, composition and behavior, composition of the market, behavior of the market and composition. What they're saying is the big companies of today are different than the big companies of yesterday. And those companies may require different multiples because of just their, their normal operations, right? If you had a bunch of oil companies there in the past, those operate differently than a bunch of tech companies. Um, and part of that also has to do with markets are bigger. And so if you have higher growth potential, then you could see where a multiple might expand. The other one is behavior. And so they're saying companies treat their cash differently. Uh, they do, uh, the dividends could be different, reinvestment in the business could be different, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the two arguments. I just want to raise those. I'm not arguing for either. Just want to raise them. Now I'll pause. You're you're getting me pretty frustrated over here. I love it. So you're doing the thing that is natural and humans do, and and is sometimes the right approach to say this time is different. So you just talked about, oh, 2013 to 2023. Well, that's different than 2003 to 2013. Of course it is. What interest rates are drastically different types of companies are drastically different. Like I don't, and good investors don't just mindlessly apply mean reversion without any thought to, oh, this is what's going to happen. I'll, I'm assuming 2013 and 2003 are the same. I don't do that. But what the flip side of that is people get caught in this indecision cycle of like, oh, well, so many things are different maybe mean reversion doesn't exist anymore. Or like Google or no, Apple is the largest stock market. Apple has nothing in common with ExxonMobil, even though ExxonMobil was the largest company in the world in whatever, the 80s. And Apple's the largest company in the world. There are more similarities there that I think people naturally realize. Some of these market forces of just being the largest company in the world do translate between Exxon and Apple. 
and you do see mean reversion happen because the competitive space gets more challenging because you're the largest company in the world. So it's not simple, but keeping it simple with your analysis for me uh, is a great guiding principle. And then, yes, you go back to the KPIs articles and say you have to use some intelligence and some intuition here. But I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I guess I am fired up at you, <laughs> but I'm not really fired up at the article. The article to me said mean reversion is real. It's really tough to know the timing. And that presents all sorts of challenges, which is why it sucks to be a value investor. But the, Second sentence there that's not in the article is, but value investing will perform if you put up with all this chaos of working through that uncertainty and being patient. And what you're saying is highly valuable, I think, and is why I think that this post, the concepts in this post are valuable for folks to read. It's everything that you're saying here. And the, the point around what is the mean, I especially think is, is valuable for folks right now. I get I get your your brain and all that stuff and it knows the things and you're you're not you're taking all sorts of stuff into account. I get all that. But if someone does take the mean as 2013 to 2023 or worse yet, I was having dinner with a, a friend the other day who is in the VC space and he was saying that people are taking the mean as 2021. Idiot. Right? In your world, right, where you're saying sometimes things get stuck on the low side. And they revert to the mean. Someone that takes the mean as 2021 is like, I'm waiting for reversion. I'm that's just sitting over here bias, waiting man. for reversion. That's, yeah. Yeah, right. And that's a really good point on in the VC space because Bill Gurley, two years ago, said people don't even know what's going to... People think the mean, it's exactly to your point, is like 2019 to 2021 when the actual mean is like uh, 2005 to 2015, you know, like, or maybe it's like 1980 valuations of some of this, uh, venture stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's the beauty I, I found in this. So it's cool. Thank you, burn. Thank you for putting it out. Thank you also for understanding what a question is. Don't fire it up about that. All right, Diggles, you got anything else? Nah, drip dry. Wait, is that a, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think that's a phrase. <laughs> I do not. Um, on that note, <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show, guys. Share it with a friend. If you get a chance, uh, hit us with a review and uh, hit listener mail, skippydougals at gmail.com. Something uh, we haven't said in a bit. We've mentioned the Substack during the pieces, but if we do put out the articles that we talk about, as well as some that we don't talk about in our Substack, so skippydougals.substack.com, if you want to get those, go sign up. That's it. Thanks. Thanks.